folks. Welcome to the LRIS Premium Podcast Series. My name is Will Aitchison, and today it's my pleasure to interview Pat Fioretto. Uh, Pat, in addition to having, I think, the finest name of any labor lawyer in the country, uh, his full name is Pasquale Fioretto, uh, he is a partner in the Chicago law firm of Baum, Sigmund, Auerbach, and Newman. Uh, he has been a lawyer since 19, or he's been associated with the firm since 1990. He's a graduate of DePaul University Law School. Uh, I'm interviewing Pat because a very significant arbitration decision came down recently between the city of Chicago and Lodge 7 of the FOP. And it's an important decision, I think, for a lot of reasons. Uh, first of all, because it establishes or reestablishes, the point has been made many times so far uh, by courts all over the country, but uh, states that disciplinary procedures are a mandatory subject of bargaining, which means that the employer is not going to be free to unilaterally make changes in disciplinary procedures without first negotiating with the union. But the arbitrator was mostly concerned with evidence as to what constitutes a past practice. How much evidence is going to be enough? Uh, how do you prove uh, past practice in this podcast? Pat will talk about the various ways uh, that Lodge 7 submitted proof to the arbitrator in this case, everything from the employer's documents to testimonial evidence and the like. Uh, and also, the opinion I think is important in terms of the scope of the remedy. Uh, what do you do? How do you come up with a make whole remedy in a situation where the employer has changed past practices? Uh, there's an added overlay to this arbitrator's opinion because Chicago has, as Pat will tell you, for a very long time had a form of civilian oversight and the city's position in the arbitration uh, came perilously close to saying, uh, well, we're the Civilian Oversight Board, we're not the police department, we don't necessarily have to follow the rules in either the collective bargaining agreement or the police department's rules. Didn't quite go that far as to say that. And uh, the arbitrator ended up having to unravel that and ended up saying, look, these are the rules that apply to the employer and the employer is the city of Chicago. Uh, Pat and I get into a, a very lively conversation. He's a, a great lawyer uh, and it's a whole lot of fun talking to him. So uh, join me while I speak to Pat Fioretto. Pat, welcome to the podcast. Good afternoon, Will. Great to be here. Well, wonderful for you to take your time out of your day to do this podcast. I know there's nothing happening in Chicago involving the Chicago police that requires your attention, right? That's an understatement. Yeah. Okay. Let's, uh, in a, a lead up to this, I think, very significant grievance arbitration decision, uh, let's let the audience know a little bit about who the parties are here. Uh, first of all, what's the scope of the bargaining unit represented by Lodge 7 of the FOP? Sure. So Lodge 7 represents basically all sworn police officers that are below the rank of sergeant. There's a separate bargaining unit for the sergeant, a separate bargaining unit for the lieutenant, and a separate bargaining unit for the captain. 
And roughly how many members are there of Lodge 7? Um, active and retired, about 13,000. My goodness, that is huge. Uh, let's go back to October 2016 when the city passes an ordinance that created what came to be known as COPA, the Civilian Office of Police Accountability. Uh, there was a predecessor civilian oversight agency, wasn't there? There was. Um, you know, every now and then the city likes to uh, shake things up. Prior to COPA, there was actually uh, what was referred to as IPRA, which was the Independent Police Review Authority. And that was in existence from 2007 until the creation of uh, the adoption of COPA, which was in 20, late 2016. Interestingly, prior to IPRA, the uh, prior administrative agency was the Office of Professional Standards, or OPS. That truly was a part of the police department. And again, interestingly, at one point, the current mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, was uh, the chief administrator of that uh, agency for about two years. It was dissolved uh, in 2007 with uh, the creation of IPRA. It's interesting how these things intertwine time and time again, isn't it? Yeah. Well, uh, so uh, in terms of the IPRA to COPA change, did COPA end up with more authority over the disciplinary processes of the Chicago Police Department than IPRA had? It did. Uh, the scope of what COPA covers now uh, has been expanded, not only to uh, excessive force, but also to all officer-involved shootings. Um, there still is a Bureau of Investigation, a BIA agency, which handles other matters, but most of the encounters that police officers have today really go through COPA. If there are residency issues or abuse of medical role violations, that's handled internally through BIA but almost everything else goes through COPA. So uh, so a standard, for example, rudeness complaint from a citizen, that would be investigated by COPA and not IAA? Absolutely. Now all complaints, all citizen complaints go through COPA. Uh, well, uh, take us through the process. COPA uh, does the investigation. Does it make a recommendation or a decision as to disposition, sustained, not sustained, whatever? It does. So the, the charge gets filed um, with an intake officer at COPA. And one of the problems, of course, is now that they're, try they're trying to allow anonymous complaints to be lodged, which they weren't able to in the past. But in any event, a CR number gets taken out. At that point, it's assigned to an investigator. An investigator will conduct an investigation. In theory, at some point, the investigator will want to talk to the actual accused officer and any potential witnesses. They'll gather the evidence, they'll gather exhibits, and they will prepare a, a summary finding, which they will present to their supervisor who reviews it. Uh, a recommendation is made by the investigator. The supervisor can adopt the uh, recommendation, brings it up to the chief administrator, who then has a final recommendation, final finding on uh, both a violation of any rule as well as any, um, no, they don't offer uh, any insight on discipline. I apologize. Uh, they simply offer uh, a finding on whether or not there's a violation. Um, 
And then it goes up to the superintendent to either agree or disagree. And, and that process has its own, um, its, its own set of legs that it takes off on, which uh, can be quite time consuming because if the superintendent doesn't agree, then the superintendent within a certain amount of time has to prepare a report and submit it to uh, the administrator of COPA and they go back and forth. But COPA certainly does have much more authority in terms of issuing findings uh, and explain, uh, you know, the superintendent in terms of what uh, what should happen to a police officer. They're also involved uh, earlier on, I think, in uh, suggesting whether or not individual officers should be stripped of their police powers while an investigation takes place. And that's a whole other issue that we're battling right now. And COPA, it, it sounded like you said, also is involved in the investigation of critical incidents uh, in which officers have in part? That is correct. And prior to the creation of uh, COPA, of course, it was usually an outside agency that would have sort of a, a lead homicide investigator that was certified by the state that would actually conduct these investigations. Now, that's no longer the case. COPA has the exclusive jurisdiction. The state can conduct its own investigation, but COPA certainly will. And another issue that we're litigating in court right now is these COPA investigators are not truly certified lead homicide investigators as envisioned by the statute. They're just rank and file investigators who go in and maybe take a five or six day uh, class and now, you know, deem themselves to be uh, experts uh, on investigating uh, these types of incidents. Are the COPA investigators sworn officers or are they civilians? They are not. A major, an overwhelming majority of them are civilians. And part of being certified as a lead homicide investigator, uh, of course, assumes that you are a sworn law enforcement officer. And I think there are only a handful out of the 30 or 40 COPA investigators that are uh, sworn officers. Uh, one last question I have, just simply by way of background. In a COPA investigation, uh, are the officers ordered to answer questions? Are they given a standard uh, Garrity warning? And if so, how does the COPA investigator have the authority, if the COPA investigator is a civilian, to order an officer to answer a question? Yeah, great question. Well, uh, of course, the COPA investigator, him or herself, they do not have the authority to force individual officers to answer questions. One of two things happens uh, once uh, an officer is brought in for a statement, once he or she's been accused. And that's really what led to the filing of our charge and our grievance and the award that we're going to talk about in a minute. If the investigator believes that the investigation uh, might lead, has a probable tendency of leading to the officer being uh, terminated from his employment, then the officer will be given his administrative rights, his guarantee rights. If the investigation, based on what the investigator has in front of him or her, uh, if they believe that it's probable that it might lead to criminal prosecution against the police officer, then they are obligated, according to Arbitrator Rommel, to provide them with their Fifth Amendment rights, Miranda warning. Uh, in the incident of an administrative uh, right, all officers, if it's not of a criminal nature, will be given their administrative rights prior to uh, giving a statement. And those rights, of course, indicate that they're required to answer the question. Um, any answers they give will not be used against them in any type of criminal proceeding. 
But if they refuse to answer, then what happens is the investigator has to contact uh, a person of the, uh, an individual from the command staff, either a lieutenant or a commander, who will get on the phone and then order the police officer to answer the question of the investigator. Okay, that solves a kind of a difficult problem that's led to litigation in other places, as I'm guessing you well know. So, uh, 2016, uh, COPA, the COPA ordinance is enacted, and COPA unrolls over the following years. Uh, I assume they develop some SOPs or maybe have some rules. What happened that resulted in Lodge 7 filing an unfair labor practice complaint in 2019? So several things happened. We, we, we had objected from the very beginning, from the very creation of, uh, of the COPA statute. We weren't involved. We didn't have seats uh, at the table. And we raised concerns. And, of course, our biggest concern was we didn't want anything in the ordinance that superseded whatever protections we had in our collective bargaining agreement. And they were reluctant to add specific language to that effect. I think they placated us by just throwing something in the ordinance that said all investigations would, would be conducted in accordance with collective bargaining agreement. But uh, we noticed quickly that the officers that accompany uh, our individual uh, police officers to provide statements we're running into problems, not so much when COPA first took over. I would say it was later, later in 2018 and even 2019, where you had a few overzealous investigators that weren't complying with what we've categorized as uh, our Bill of Rights. We have an article in our collective bargaining agreement that we refer to as the Bill of Rights, which is broken down into two segments. Section 6.1, which refers to officers that are brought in during an investigation who are accused, uh, and Section 6.2, which are officers that are being brought in who are not accused of any wrongdoing, but are simply witnesses. So what we noticed, especially with COPA in 2018 and 2019, and not so much with BIA, that they weren't really complying with all of those Bill of Rights. They were interfering more when the, uh, the uh, attorney that was accompanying the police officer was trying to interject and was trying to consult with uh, his or her uh, witness. They were not providing the individual officers with the specifics of what the allegations were. They were, um, the contract allows for two investigators to conduct an investigation, a primary and a secondary, and there are specifics in terms of what role each of those two investigators have. In other words, it can't be a tag team where they go back and forth, back and forth. The primary investigator would, would ask all the questions. The, the secondary investigator would only be allowed to ask follow-up questions. Well, that wasn't happening. As they were hiring more and more what I consider inexperienced investigators or investigators who really had an ax to grind against police officers, uh, they would go ahead and start having this task team where they would constantly basically be harassing the individual officers and trying to trip the officers up by asking them the same questions three, four, five times, even over the objection of the attorney. There were also issues with anonymous complaints. So as all of this was starting to build, um, the individual attorneys that represent the individual police officers would report back to the lodge. Once it got back to us, uh, we 
contacted each of the attorneys, and we learned that this was becoming more and more of a practice. The biggest issue, of course, um, which I saved for last, is Section 6.1i, which talks about what we had discussed earlier. When an officer comes in to give a statement, he or she will be given one of two rights, either the administrative rights or criminal rights. And we had found out that beginning in late 2018, early 2019, uh, COPA was not providing officers with their criminal rights when the investigation would certainly lead uh, to criminal uh, uh, to a criminal action. Where it was not only probable, but in some cases, and in one case in particular, it had already taken place. So the criminal, uh, the criminal investigation or prosecution had started and still there was no exactly. advice? Okay. Exactly. And in one particular case, there was an individual officer who had been um, brought up on charges on domestic abuse. Uh, he was out on bail. He had a trial that was scheduled months out. Popa brought him in for a statement when the attorney that accompanied uh, the officer said, you know, you need to read him his rights. And they said, we don't have to read him his criminal rights. We don't do that. We're just going to give him his administrative rights. And the attorney objected and said, I'm not going to have my client respond. You have to give them, give him his criminal rights. They refused. They called the lieutenant down or uh, down. They, the captain ordered the officer. The officer refused. They brought the officer up on additional charges refusing to answer what? Uh, a direct question. Wait a minute, wait a minute, Pat. You're in the Seventh Circuit. You've got Franklin versus City of Evanston from the Seventh Circuit that long ago held that that, was unconstitu- that sort of approach was unconstitutional. Well, apparently it doesn't apply to COPA, or so they thought. So these types of incidents, Will, were happening more and more. There were two officers in, in significantly high-profile cases where um, criminal prosecution, again, was either present or was imminent. Um, you know, they were talking to the state's attorney's office, and they, the, the investigators simply refused to provide them. They even contacted the chief or the assistant chief at the time, um, an individual named Kirsten, who explained to the attorney, we're COPA, we don't have to give criminal rights, administrative rights are good enough. That led us to do several things. We filed a grievance over the individual uh, two officers who now had a second set of charges brought against them. And then we also decided to file an unfair labor practice charge with the State Labor Relations Board um, in which we allege that by engaging in this conduct and changing how the investigation is taking place, they they made a unilateral change to a term and condition of employment, i.e. the Bill of Rights and how our officers are going to be investigated and subsequently disciplined. Um, I forgot to mention that prior to us filing the charge, you know, we had had discussions with the city. We had um, made a written request that they bargain with us. Uh, we had learned earlier on that before you can file a failure to bargain or unilateral change, you have to make a formal written request to bargain, which we did. We did that in January when the city refused to acknowledge uh, its obligation to bargain with us, then in February, we went ahead and filed an unfair labor practice charge. And that unfair labor practice charge was filed where? It was filed with the State Labor Relations Act uh, in Chicago. Uh, I'm sorry, the State Labor Relations Board in Chicago. 
And I, I can pretty much guess what happened. If you have a pending grievance and then you're filing a, a unilateral change unfair labor practice complaint, can guess what the board did with the unfair labor practice complaint, but why don't you tell us? Well, first of all, it took them 18 months to conduct their investigation. I had filed five separate position statements. We had filed voluminous exhibits because literally every other week something new was coming up that we felt was important to share with the board agent. Um, and after 18 months, as you've pointed out, they did what they always do and they punted. They basically said, we're going to issue, they issued a deferral order in which they deferred processing uh, the ULP charge pending resolution through the grievance process. The interesting part is at that point, we still had not filed a grievance um, alleging the overall change to all of Article 6. The only grievance that was out there was the grievance challenging the two officers that had received additional discipline. But part of the reason that the board agreed to defer the charge was because the city agreed to waive any type of timeliness issues and to actually bring that uh, underlying issue to the arbitrator's attention. So we had to go ahead then and file subsequently a class action grievance, which basically mirrored the allegation that we put forth in the ULP charge. We consolidated that with the prior grievance addressing the discipline of the two individual officers, and we basically went to an expedited hearing where we um, you know, quickly selected an arbitrator and scheduled it for hearing uh, as soon as we were able to. And that hearing took place, I believe, in January of 2021. An expedited hearing. You file an unfair labor practice complaint in 2019 and you get a hearing in 2021. Uh, yes. The wheels of justice move rather slowly, don't they, Will? They do indeed. Uh, for, for our listeners, uh, what Pat is describing is usually called getting colliered. And the reason it's called that is after a National Labor Relations Board decision uh, in which the NLRB had to decide, what do we do when we have a unilateral change on fair labor practice, uh, as Pat had on his hands here, and we have a grievance and they have the same subject matter. And the NLRB's answer to that was, what we're going to do is nothing. We're going to wait for the grievance to uh, proceed. We'll look at the arbitrator's decision, come up for air and decide whether there's anything left for us to decide. Uh, and that way, we won't have to do the work in most of these cases. Uh, and the Collier decision has been adopted by state labor boards all over the country. And that's what happened to you, Pat, right? Yes, and it's too bad that it really took that long. Had they told us that when we had initially filed the charge, it, it certainly would have circumvented a year and a half of, it, of the investigation. We certainly would have gotten a decision a lot quicker. So uh, you're, you now have a hearing, you've selected an arbitrator, and I think the arbitrator you selected is very notable here. Uh, tell us about him. Yeah, so I, I wish that we could clone more George Rumel's uh, in, in, in society. He is, uh, he's been arbitrating, I think, um, twice as long as I've been practicing law. He is a, a brilliant, brilliant arbitrator who has a considerable amount of, of experience, uh, particularly in law enforcement. Uh, he's well known throughout the country, and 
uh, fortunately, he's quite familiar with Lodge 7 in the city of Chicago. And in fact, um, I was the one that suggested to the city that we utilize uh, George. Under our present collective bargaining agreement, the parties have had a panel, uh, a permanent panel of five arbitrators that we use. And George Rumel is one of those five arbitrators. Looking at the other four arbitrators without you know, saying anything at all negatively about them because they're all competent, uh, George is head and shoulders above them in large part because of the history that he has with our lodge. And, of course, some of the um, prior cases that he's ruled on, we were able to use at the arbitration hearing. Again, cases that he then relied upon when he issued his award here. Um, so we can't say enough good things about arbitrator Ramon. I, I've got a very minor war story for you. A, a few years ago, the National Academy of Arbitrators met in Chicago, of all places, and I was, I was asked to come speak on body cameras. Uh, this is when body cams were still a relatively new thing. And there was a group of, I don't know, 50, 75 arbitrators in the room. Uh, and it, there was the usual Q&A and, and a, a pretty good give and take. And then George Rumel spoke and he had a question. And it turned out to be more than a question. It turned out to be sort of a story uh, as opposed to a question. And I was just sitting there watching as the 50 to 75 other arbitrators in the room were completely in awe of what he was saying. I mean, you are right. This is a man who has, I think, nationwide respect as one of the foremost arbitrators in the country. This is quite a choice to hear this case. So, and we were fortunate that A, he was available, uh, and B, that we were able to get it in front of him uh, as quickly as we did. So the, the most important issue that uh, arbitrator Rumel has to decide in your case is the advice of rights question. Uh, does COPA have to give the rights that had been given for years and years in Chicago? How, how does he tear that apart and analyze it? What's his thinking? Well, he does several things. First of all, he acknowledged, because there were other issues that were part of the ULP charge, uh, he acknowledged that there were other sections of Article 6.1 that the parties had resolved separately through a settlement agreement. Um, and one of the big ones that I just want to mention real quick before we talk about Section 6.1i is uh, the right to have counsel and the role of counsel. Back in 1997, it was arbitrator Rumel that uh, heard another arbitration hearing between the same parties and issued an incredible ruling in which he set out nine different criteria or nine different rules in terms of the role that uh, individual attorneys have when they accompany an officer to give a statement. Because, of course, the COPA investigators were completely ignoring them. So we were able to settle in part to make the hearing uh, shorter and to focus on what was really happening the biggest issue that the lodge had, which was the administrative rights versus uh, the criminal rights being administered. So all these other sort of sub-issues that we had, um, the right to counsel, um, whether or not they can go forward without an affidavit, uh, what role the two investigators have, we resolved that. And we resolved it through a settlement agreement in which we set forth in an enforceable agreement basically what the language of our contract states as well as 
what the rulings of the arbitrator's decisions were that interpreted each of those provisions. So now, moving forward, if we have an investigator who's overzealous and doesn't comply, we can do one of two things. First, we bring it to the attention of their supervisor, and if their supervisor ignores it, we're going to go into state court to move to have the terms of those settlement agreements enforced. So once we get those uh, and you also you, you also have the benefit, excuse me, you also have the benefit of having everything in one place, and that can be quite useful. Exactly. exactly. A single document. And in the whereas paragraph of the settlement agreement, Will, you'll be happy to know that we, we incorporated some of the arguments that we made to Ramal, that, you know, COPA is part of the city, that COPA will comply with all the terms of the collective bargaining agreement. So we had already started to set the stage in settling those minor issues so that we presented it basically as an exhibit, as a joint exhibit, to arbitrator Rumel when we presented the 6.1i uh, argument to him. Yeah, and, and Pat, nicely done, because otherwise <laughs> those, those issues might be litigated in the future. Uh, when exactly. People, people tend to forget. Exactly. And we were... Put- we were concerned in part because of the timing. You know, COPA um, became effective in 2017. Here we are now filing basically a class action grievance in 2020. One of the first things I would do as a clever employer attorney is raise a timeliness issue. Why are you raising this now? Six months limitation. You could only go back six months. But by incorporating this in the settlement agreement, by the board forcing the city to agree to waive any timeliness issue, we were able to bring all of this nicely packaged and delivered to the arbitrator room out. Okay. So how does so, he, how does he take apart we the get notice the, issue? So here's what um, George says. First and foremost, he makes it abundantly clear that even though Chicago is currently, the Chicago police department is currently under a consent decree, a federal consent decree. Uh, he made it perfectly clear that the consent decree does not trump the terms of the collective bargaining agreement. Um, and he cited in, the, in his decision uh, language that the judge um, issued in his findings and his approval of the consent decree that, you know, all the terms of the, of the collective bargaining agreement will be adhered to. The consent decree is not to disturb that. It's not to supersede that. So we have some pretty powerful language in the consent decree itself. So arbitrator Rommel acknowledged that. He then went ahead and acknowledged uh, the, claim, the, the plain language of Article 6.1. You know, on its face, it's there to be read. I personally thought that he would spend more time on the clear language, the clear meaning of what Section 6.1i uh, states. Um, but instead, what he does is he focuses more on the past practice. And what arbitrator Rommel says is, that, you know, the parties agreed in Section 6.1 to have sort of general language. And it's common in collective bargaining that then you fill in general language more specifically with past practices. And here we have a history of past practices. And we were able to establish through some very credible uh, witnesses, including one of the former general counsels of Lodge 7, what the history and practice had been, not only under... IPRA, which is the predecessor agency to COPA, but also under OPS, which, by the way, our current mayor served as the head of for two years. Um, and our witnesses and the documents were able to establish that there are two separate forms that are used and that have been used 
since even before 1981 when we had our first collective bargaining agreement. And the parties basically memorialized what had been happening pre-1981 into their first contract. So the language that's found in Section 6.1i that talks about these two these two rights that must be given, one of the two that must be given to an officer, those had been in existence pre-1981, and that language has never changed since the inception of our collective bargaining with the city. It's been the same since 1981. Um, we were able to establish that both OPS and IPRA would either put a case on hold until the state's attorney uh, conducted its investigation to see if, indeed, criminal prosecution is going to take place, uh, or if they determined early on that there really isn't anything that's going to be significant that's going to lead to criminal prosecution. But if, in fact, it did lead to criminal prosecution and the investigator chose, nonetheless, to take the statements of the officer, then the unrebutted testimony established both under OPS and IPRA that those investigators would provide and did provide Fifth Amendment protection to the officers. They would be read their criminal rights. And that changed. And the arbitrator found you can't do that. That's a violation of the contract. It's a unilateral case. Uh, and, and then he went ahead, of course, and talked about... I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to ask, Pat, you know, the way you lay it out, you're an advocate. It, it sounds compelling. What was the city's argument? Believe it or not, Andrea Kirsten, who is now the acting administrator, came out on her direct examination and said, since I've been at COPA in 2017, we have never, ever administered criminal rights. We think that administrative rights are enough. We don't do that. And by the way, Mr. Fiorito, if we had to do that, we had to wait for the state's attorney's office to decide what to do. Years would go by and there would be a delay and that would be unjust. It made their arguments really made no sense. First of all, the arguments are false because not only did COPA also administer criminal rights even before Kristen showed up, but the other administrative agency that I've been talking about, IED, they do issue criminal rights. And IED, COPA, they're all part of the city. They're all bound to the collective bargaining More importantly, the general orders and the special orders that exist, that have existed since the 1980s, basically contain the same language that we have in our collective bargaining agreement. Again, you must provide either administrative rights or criminal rights. In addition, believe it or not, we were able to locate manuals that COPA has, both 2017 and 2018 in COPA's own investigatory manual, in their training materials that they utilize to train their investigators who are going to be investigating these cases, the same language exists. They basically copied and pasted the language from our Bill of Rights that talks about these two different rights that you can give, administrative or uh, criminal rights. But they've completely ignored that, at least that's the position they took in front of arbitrator Rumel, that they don't have. Interesting. Uh, I'm guessing, Pat, you did not have too much fun cross-examining her with the agency's well, own documents. I, I, 
I, I had her acknowledge everything that was in the documents. I had her restate her position that they don't provide anything. And um, at some point, she did acknowledge that in the past, she had heard that some investigators may have provided uh, criminal rights to certain police officers, but she wasn't aware of anything specifically. Goodness gracious. Okay. Uh, so, Pat, I interrupted you. Where does uh, Arbitrator Rommel go from there? He's found a past practice. He's found that the past practice is consistent with the contract. Uh, what's his right. next step? And he basically says, look, you know, the word here, the optimal word here is the word probable. And we had given him one definition, I think, using the Merriam-Webster dictionary, and he rather decided to use uh, another uh, definition from one of his own dictionaries. But he said probable means probable, you know, more likely than not. Uh, and if that's the case, you have to give him or her their criminal rights. And by not doing so, you violated the contract. And on top of it, by going ahead and forcing the officer or ordering the officer to uh, respond to the question and the officer refusing, you then violated yet another due process argument by charging them additionally with a new set of charges. So in his remedy section, he was very specific. He said, not only does the city and COPA have to comply with Article 6.1i, but they have to remove from these two individual officers any discipline that resulted from uh, the officers refusing a direct order from their commander. I want to be clear. To the extent that there were charges that were brought against one of these two officers, whether it was for excessive force or domestic battery or whatever, those charges, I think, Rumel, arbitrator Rumel, would consider appropriate in front of the police force. However, to the extent now that the department is trying to bring termination charges against these two officers in front of the police board, I've already spoken with their attorneys, and they're making a motion in front of the police board to have those portions of the charges removed pursuant to the arbitrator's decision. I'm curious, Pat, I've read the uh, police reform legislation that uh, the Illinois legislature recently passed that weighed in at about 801 pages or something like that. Uh, and it forbids the expunction of disciplinary records from the file. How does the arbitrator's remedy square with the police reform legislation? Well, at this point, we'll keep in mind that there has been no disciplinary finding yet. This ah. is still part of the investigation. Um, so the police board will ultimately at some point make a decision, right? Did this officer engage in excessive force? Was this officer shooting justified? Should this officer be terminated? At that point, then, I think once the finding is made and it goes through the administrative process in circuit court, I think it would be difficult to remove. But right now, we're not at that point. Charges have just been brought. So what I believe Arbitrator Rommel's award uh, signifies is a directive to the department to take that part of the charge out of the equation. You can't bring Officer so-and-so up on a termination charge because he or she refused to answer a direct order when you didn't read them their criminal rights that were required to one of the collective bargaining things. I, I see. Now, you had another issue in the case that I think of as the burden of proof issue. Can you tell us what it was and what the arbitrator did with that? Yes. Um, and this was kind of one of those issues where between you and I in the audience, 
I, I really didn't think we had a very strong argument to begin with. Um, so as we had indicated, the investigator, the, the COPA or IPRA investigator, for many, many years in the past, after they prepare their, um, they finish their uh, investigation and prepare the report, they issue findings. And they're one to four findings. Uh, the allegations are either sustained, not sustained, exonerated, or unfounded. One of those four findings. And then, of course, based on those findings, if there was fault, then at some point the superintendent would impose some sort of discipline. Well, the, the burden of proof or the standard of proof that had been used for forever was preponderance of the evidence. Was there a preponderance of the evidence to establish that the violations, of, that the work, that the uh, department rule had been violated? So all of those uh, standards, exonerated, unfounded, sustained, and not sustained, all of them had the same burden of proof. Lo and behold, for whatever reason, part of the consent decree changed the burden of proof, the evidentiary proof, for the last two, for the unfounded uh, and exonerated standards. And they made it clear and convincing. And as you know, clear and convincing is higher than preponderance of the evidence. So it's more difficult from our perspective to exonerate somebody or to have an unfounded finding. That's important. Why is it important, some of your listeners might ask? Well, because under the collective bargaining agreement, if something, if, if a charge that's brought against a police officer is found to be exonerated and unfounded, it can never be used against the police officer going forward. However, if something is sustained or not sustained, the department, unfortunately, can use it in the future if there are future excessive force charges that are brought against a police officer for purposes of in notice to the officer, that you're put on notice that the department doesn't, you know, accept any type of excessive force uh, claim. So from our perspective, it was significant enough, significant enough for us to raise the arbitration hearing. Unfortunately, um, arbitrator Rommel did not think so. He, once again, relying on uh, Judge Dow's consent decree, basically indicated that in this case, the consent decree actually took precedence over the contract, but only because there was no general or specific language in the contract that addresses burdens of proof. What we've been talking about with Section 6.1i and all the Bill of Rights, that's all set forth in the collective bargaining agreement. But these burden of proof standards, none of that exists in the contract. That's really all. It's come out in special orders. It's come out in general orders. It's come out in policies, but not so much in the contract. So unfortunately, arbitrator Rommel said, no, this is not a unilateral change. They're able to do that. And quite frankly, it's only a recommendation. At some point at the end of the day, it's going to be the superintendent that's going to decide ultimately what the discipline should be. So, so Pat, so we weren't terribly saddened by that rule. Yeah, I can see that. A, a question for you, though. Uh, let's say that the the investigator or the supervisor, whoever it is who's deciding an issue, uh, decides that there is not clear and convincing evidence that the charge against the officer should be exonerated. Does it default to a not sustained finding, or is there some new finding that is created? Good question. There is no new finding. I would assume it's going to default to a not sustained. But again, 
but not the same still carries with it the stigma that it might be used against an officer in the future in other cases. Well, sounds like a bargaining issue. Yeah, yes, exactly. And, you know, it's certainly something we're going to keep our eyes on. And to the extent there's anything less than determination in terms of discipline that's issued at some point, we're going to look at that and see if we can attack it through a separate grievance. Uh, has the city challenged Arbitrator Rommel's decision? Uh, great question. Um, they have not so far, but um, Arbitrator Rommel has retained jurisdiction, so the time limit has not expired. And as you know, uh, once the arbitrator's jurisdiction has issued and, and the award becomes final, either side has 90 days um, to go into court and try to have it vacated, or in our case, to try and have it enforced. Um, you know, I typically wait the 90-day period if I want to enforce an award so that, you know, the employer can't come back and say, well, we want to challenge it. I'm going to wait for the employer to challenge if they want to vacate it and then uh, take it from there. But um, I would assume if I were a betting man that uh, the city is going to do everything it can to try and challenge this award. And I'll tell you, Pat, I, I read uh, a lot of decisions from Illinois courts on the public policy exception to the finality of arbitrators' awards. And and for our listeners, yes. uh, arbitrators' awards are typically final and binding, but there is an exception that's referred to as the public policy exception where a court will not enforce an arbitrator's decision that is against a well-defined dominant public policy. And, and Pat, I've got to tell you, I don't have any idea what the public policy rule is in Illinois anymore. I thought I understood it. I, th I thought you followed the uh, U.S. Supreme Court's MISCO standards and uh, you know series of U.S. Supreme Court cases. But recently I see Illinois courts, trial courts and the Court of Appeals overturning arbitrators' decisions on a public policy basis that uh, that's, that's simply the wrong result. Uh, am I reading these cases wrong? You're not. And, and actually, I, I would to go with saying I public policy in Illinois, unfortunately, is turning into public opinion. And if there is a public opinion um, mantra, and, you know, right now that mantra is all law enforcement is evil. Anything that police officers do is bad. Anytime a police officer is brought up with any type of wrongdoing, they must be guilty. You must charge them to the fullest extent of the law. And that's not what public policy is about, as you've indicated. It has to be articulated. It can't just be the whim of the citizens in a particular area. And sadly, I think that's what this is turning into. Um, and, and I hope that the pendulum starts swinging back in the other direction. Well, but, I mean, just as an outsider, it looks to me like the Illinois Supreme Court is going to have to step in and say something like, you know, we meant what we said for the last 30 years about the public policy doctrine. All you lower courts, you need to get, get in shape over this. Otherwise, you're going to have little finality to arbitrators' decisions. You're going to have both employers and right. unions file easily file right. challenges to them. And, and really, well, this is, I think, one of those issues where both sides should be on the same side. Labor and management should both agree. You know, an arbitrator's decision should be final, period. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, Pat. Uh, it's above our pay grade. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Uh, Pat, thank you so much for the time. You've been very generous with us and in talking about this case and uh, and the very, very unusual history uh, that that came to Arbitrator Rommel. We will be uh, posting online for our listeners Arbitrator Rommel's decision as well as the collective bargaining agreements. So anybody can go see Article 6.1i if they want to take a look at the contract. Uh, and, and Pat, once again, thanks so much for uh, sitting for this interview. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome, Will. It's been my pleasure. Uh, and uh, to all of our listeners, thanks for joining us. This has been yet one more in a series of special podcasts from the Labor Relations Information System. That was Pat Fioretto, one of the uh, attorneys for Lodge 7 of the Fraternal Order of Police in Chicago. Uh, join us, will you, for our regular First Thursday podcast, which will be coming up in a couple of weeks, where I'll be reviewing recent developments from around the country in public safety labor issues. And with that, this is Will Aitchison signing off.